Career Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Nisar Ahmed. I am the founder and editor of the blog, careermatters.com. And this is episode 23 of the Career Matters Podcast. And this episode is part of the expert series. And for today's expert series episode, I'm interviewing Mark Crowley. He's the author of the book, Lead from the Heart. He's also a regular contributor on Forbes, Huffington Post, Fast Company, and other publications, usually on the topic of leadership. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nisar. So, Mark, I, I always ask uh, my guests uh, for the uh, in this interview to just a quick introduction about themselves so that the audience knows who they are and what they do. So, please start off by telling us who you are. <laughs> All right. That's a very big question, obviously. But uh, in a nutshell, I am a former senior executive for one of the largest financial institutions in America and a few years left that career uh, and began to work on a book, which later became Lead from the Heart. And in the process of writing the book and researching the book, I realized that what I was, you know, for all intents and purposes, made profound discoveries about leadership and about why our traditional ways of managing people in the workplace are failing and why engagement has, has fallen so low across the world. And so in effect, what I've done is translated my direct experience of managing people for 25 years very successfully and tremendous research into human behavior and the trends in workplace of engagement and really tapping into a, a myriad of, of intellectual sources, research sources that build a very compelling case that the way we've traditionally managed people isn't just failing, but the only way we're going to be able to turn engagement around and really get people to be loyal to organizations fully committed, putting their heart into their work, if you will, is to recreate how we manage people. And my premise is that feelings and emotions drive human behavior, what we care about most, what we commit ourselves to most in our lives. And so if that's the case, then we need to start managing people by giving them the experience of positive emotions. So for all, intel, for all intents and purposes, instead of emphasizing cash bonuses or, you know, even even uh, other forms of compensation as a means of driving engagement, we need to start paying people in emotional currency. We need to find ways, and I know what those ways are, by the way, there are certain practices that light people up when you do them, but they're very counter to what we've ever believed was effective in business. In many cases, just the word heart, for example, strikes a lot of people as soft, weak, as spoken by someone who doesn't get business. And what I'm here to say is that everything we've ever believed about traditional management is really wrong. Our idea that we pay people as little as possible, squeeze as much out of them as possible, treat people as easily replaceable. Uh, these are ancient ideas, but they continue to drive a lot of our thinking in business. And I'm saying the more you invest in people, the more you give, we reap what we sow in leadership. So generosity, caring about people, really, you know, wanting to make sure that people thrive as human beings while they're working for you is the way to drive greatest financial performance, sustainably great uh, performance in organizations today. 
Wow, thanks. Uh, thanks for the introduction. And I'm excited and curious to hear some of these uh, topics that you have touched on. I'll ask you that in a bit. Uh, but before that, I wanted to ask you, where are you calling from, Mark? I'm calling from La Jolla, California, which is about uh, a 12-minute drive from downtown San Diego. Okay. So uh, another follow-up question is, uh, uh, what is a fun fact uh, or something that most people haven't heard about your city or town? Um, several magazines, including Worth magazine, which I'm not a big fan of, but nevertheless, uh, picked La Jolla, California as the single best place to live in America. So I feel very grateful to live where I live. Well, that, that's great to hear. Um, and now let's, uh, I think we'll, we'll get into the topic of leadership. Uh, myself included and the listeners, we're always curious about the topic of leadership. I think it's, uh, first of all, the question I wanted to ask you is, um, there is still a misconception, I, 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 I don't want to assume it's a misconception, there's still a theory out there that leadership is something you're born with, either you're a lead, born leader or not. Is that true? Uh, that's a big question, and it's hard to answer it because there are certainly people who over time can become very effective at it. I happen to believe, and research from Gallup confirms this, that the skill set that we need in order to, um, to really be great leaders is something that not everyone shares. And so for all intents and purposes, we've got uh, probably three people on the planet for every 10 that have an inclination to care about the well-being of people that thrive seeing other people succeed. A lot of people just really are focused on their own success, their own recognition, their own career growth, etc. And what we're really looking for are advocates. And so I think that's the common denominator that we need to be looking for today. Not everyone has that. So if you don't have that, I think it's going to be hard to really master being a great leader. Uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, I, I, I look, for me, it sounds like a very contrarian approach. And, and the reason I'm saying that is traditionally leadership, um, even today uh, in corporations or different avenues of life, it's not how people look at leadership, right? A leadership is assumed as a, there is still that authoritative type of leadership, um, and, motiv and motivating uh, your followers by fear. And you mentioned the word emotions at the beginning. So when you say only three out of people uh, care about the well-being of others, so you, you're talking about a totally different type of a leader. Yeah, I, I mean, I really am saying we need to blow up our traditional beliefs about what makes great leadership. And instead of people, you know, a lot of times what happens, Nisar, is we'll take somebody who's doing great in a particular role, let's say, for example, a top salesperson, and we'll say, well, you know, we're going to lose this person. She, she's our best salesperson month in and month out. And if we don't do something for her, well, we're going to lose her. And so we think, well, she's got, you know, there's 10 other people in her role. So why don't we put her in charge of managing those people? And boy, we've hit the jackpot because not only have we given this person a top, you know, role in the company and we get to keep her um, so we don't lose her talents. But she's going to go over there and make everybody as great as she does. She is. And then we are surprised every time that we do this. And by the way, this is this is true of 
any business, by the way. You could be a great architect or a great doctor or, you know, uh, in, in this case, a great salesperson. But by the time you put them into management, we're, we wonder why they're not successful. And the reason they're not successful oftentimes is because the skill set that's needed to be a manager is very different from being whatever it was that they were that got them the job in the first place. So, for example, a salesperson who's typically number one is focused on themselves, focused on their own recognition, their own pay, seeing their own name on the top of the sales reports. They're not collaborative, they're not cooperative, and they're not expected to be. Um, and they certainly aren't sharing their ideas. Now you put them in charge of other people, and what do they do? They often perversely compete with the very people they're supposed to be supporting. And so people start to feel that the very person they work for is a threat because the former salesperson is sort of insecure and feels threatened by the fact that other people are now getting that limelight and they're not wired to say, that's not my job anymore. What I really want to do is to help other people be more successful like I was. And so what we need to do is to find people who have an advocacy for other people who want to be a coach. And, you know, it's it's this is true in many, many cases throughout all of sports, um, whether it be collegiate sports or professional sports, that the very best coaches, the ones who have won Super Bowls and NBA championships and NCAA tournaments, etc., they weren't the best players. They were people who watched how the game played, understood how the game played, but were able to take teams of people and make them cohesive and make them work together in a way that drove performance. And a lot of top, a lot of top athletes don't have that inclination because they've spent their entire careers focusing on what's going to make me great, not what's going to make other people great. And this is sort of our mistake. And so Gallup believes that two-thirds of people in management roles today lack the ability to manage people. And this is why we've got an engagement problem. So we need to sort of revisit that, you know, if, if, if you know, I have this, this question where you ask people, and by the way, this is interesting because just a few months ago, I saw that this is what Mark Zuckerberg is asking at Facebook, this very question. And I've been asking it for years. Tell me two or three people that in your career as a manager that you helped grow so that they could go on to bigger and better things. So tell me who the person was, where they started and where they are now and what you did specifically to help them, groom them, coach them, grow them. And you'd be surprised how many people just throw their hands up and go, well, I, you know, I don't really have those people. I can't really show you that because they've never had that inclination. And so if they can't give you list after list of people that they've done that for, I believe we don't want those people in management roles because they're not going to they're not going to do well in the future that I envision for for workplace leadership. Mark, you've shared some interesting perspectives, and I think based on experience, I, I can tell whether it's in the software side or even, or even on the sales side, usually when someone becomes good at their job, their technical skills, they are promoted. Uh, so I think, as you said, it, it happens a lot. So for those people who get that opportunity, um, a, a, apart from the core uh, uh, trait of caring for others' well-being, what other traits can they develop, whatever skills they can improve to become the type of leader you're talking about? 
Well, you know, every leader in the world knows that, you know, if you go up to the man on the street and you say, do you manage people? Yes, I do. Well, is recognition uh, a big part of your success? Oh, every leader knows how important recognition is. Everyone knows you have to appreciate your people. And yet what I can tell you is time and time again, through the course of my career, I saw peer managers, subordinate, you know, people that were, you know, higher levels, lower levels, it didn't really matter. But consistently, what I saw were managers and leaders giving people really big assignments, really big goals, sometimes projects that could take months, you know, many months or sales goals that were, you know, we're so far behind and we really need to get there and all hands on deck kind of a thing. And people did everything that they asked, coming in early, staying late, working weekends, just putting themselves, fully committing themselves. And then right as they're getting ready to, to say victory. The manager goes, okay, look, we're really behind on our next project, so I need you to finish this thing up, and we got to get going. And they never give people the opportunity to savor that victory. And to hear the boss say, don't think I didn't know when you came in. Don't think I know that you missed Little League games. Don't think I don't know what a commitment you made. And the work you did is fantastic. It's magnificent, and I'm so grateful to you. And let people talk about what they did. That I call that savoring the victory. And without allowing that, that's managerial malpractice, because if people feel that they're not appreciated for what they do, they stop caring. And universal language, not my language, they stop putting their heart into their work. And it's hard to resurrect people when they've done everything you asked them to do and worked really hard and you don't and you fail to appreciate them. So, if you know, if I have any advice, I would tell people you can almost never over appreciate people. You don't have to dole it out like you're going into your pocket every time. People thrive on recognition. They want to know that they're appreciated. They want to know that their work is seen as being good and valued. And the only person who can make that meaningful to them beyond it internally validated is their boss. And so when their boss says, you are fantastic and I'm so grateful to have you here, People in management roles often think, oh, well, now they're going to want more money or they're going to want to take advantage of me. And I'm thinking that's just not true. What people do is they double down on their efforts because they're grateful to work for a boss like that. They're grateful for a boss who has the courage to say, I don't know what I would do without you. You're one of the best hires I've ever made. I'm so glad you're on my team. All of that. And thank you, by the way, for an incredible year or an incredible month or for hitting a goal that was really meaningful to me. So, you know, we, we, recognition is one of the top topics in social media, but it's the execution that uh, we fail at consistently. And so I call it institutionalizing recognition, where people pick a day and time on a consistent basis, like a monthly meeting, where the very first thing they do is to thank people for what they've already done. My mantra is I can't ask people to do more for me until I've thanked them for what they've already done. And if you've got a team of 30 people and 27 of them nailed what you wanted them to do, we have this belief in business that we should only be thanking the top three, like it's the Olympics. And I'm thinking, well, okay, if you want the other 24 people to not perform the next month, that's a great strategy. Otherwise, you need to take your time and thank all 27 people publicly for what they've done. Mary, you had a fantastic month. Thank you for this, this, and this. Tom, 
can't believe how well you did this month. You had a struggle last month and what a rebound. I mean, that kind of energy, that kind of time. And I've had, you know, managers that I've worked for where they they understood recognition and they did this execution, but they're looking at their watch. They're 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 nervously thinking I'm behind time and what I really want to get to. And people can feel that. That's my belief that this comes down to feelings. And so if people feel that it's inauthentic or people feel that you don't really you don't really appreciate them, it turns something off inside. It shuts down their spirit. This is what I believe. And the only way you can do this is by making a full, authentic investment in people. And a lot of people aren't willing to do it. And those are the people that are going to fail in leadership going forward because 40% of the working population today are millennials. In 10 years, it's going to be nearly 80%. And so this is a generation of workers that just won't work unless you give this to them. And so I'm saying the early adopters are going to be the ones that thrive. And those that don't adopt, those that resist, and think that this is all wishy-washy and soft and doesn't, you know, isn't essential for business, they're going to fail because they're not going to be able to attract great talent. They're not going to be able to retain great talent. And ultimately, their businesses aren't going to be able to perform. That's an interesting perspective. And uh, I, I just, when you were talking, Mark, I was thinking about myself, my experience. Uh, I, I, My full-time career, I work in software sales and and as you mentioned a couple of times, salespeople are driven by uh, by money, right? By by recognition, by victory. But recognition goes a big, big uh, way, especially when you have moments when your boss or the CEO of the company comes down and recognizes you. That definitely adds a boost to your uh, attachment to the company. So I can personally attest to what he just said. I, on on the other side, being an employee. Um, Absolutely. I've, I've worked under CEOs and leaders like that, and it's a fun to work in, the, in those teams. Well, I think it drives performance. Or it's not just a nice thing to do to have the CEO come down and go, hey, good job. It's, it's what fuels the human spirit is to be recognized and appreciated and valued. And we take this for granted in business of how important it is. And it's so interesting because, you know, I've managed salespeople my entire life. And you think that all they're doing is adding up on a cash register how much money they're making every time they make a sale and a commission. But really what they're looking for is the validation that they're doing well. Most salespeople I know want more time. They want more interest in, from their boss. They want more appreciation and recognition. And if you give it to them, they're going to do great. They're just going to do great. And they'll work really hard for it. That's the other thing I've learned is that Month in and month out, if they can count on you to recognize them, if they know that they're going to go into a meeting and that everyone who excelled the previous month is, you know, is going to get approval and acknowledgement and, and spoken about, they're going to work really hard to get that. So one other thing I wanted to ask is we have covered about, we have covered so far what it means, what your version of leadership is, how can someone get started. I wanted to ask you a, a question, a flip question. Um, this is just my perspective. I believe that there is always a shortage of good leaders and uh, whether it is business or politics or sports, there's always a need for good leaders. And so a question to you, since you, you've been studying leadership, you coach others, you talk to others, why is it important for someone to become a good, like what, what is the value the, uh, the team and society gets by becoming a good leader? 
Um, there's a lot of research that shows that our influence uh, studies have been done in social media, but we also know that this is true on a personal level, that our impact on people's lives is at least three steps forward. So I'm impacting you. I'm impacting a friend of yours and another friend of yours. So three people down the line. Um, so you may, for example, have a conversation, say, I interviewed Mark C. Crowley today. Oh, what was that about? Oh, that's interesting. And then that, that person then says, you know, my friend Nisar had a conversation with a guy named Mark Crowley, and he said this. And so we have a deeper influence than just on the individual people that work for us. And so, for example, um, you know, you're asking a big world question, which is why should leadership, you know, why, why should we put a greater value on leadership? Because we're really impacting people's lives. So the decisions I make as a manager or a CEO have a direct impact on people's families, on people's lives, on people's friends, because, you know, they care about their, their, their friend, they care about their brother, they care about their spouse. And so if we make decisions that value people, we have a ripple effect in affecting other people. And we also, that ends up, it's so interesting because it ends up having an impact on the reputation of organizations and your own, rec your own reputation, where people begin to think of that person as being a really thoughtful, caring, great leader. And so then it becomes no longer John is a great leader, but the company that John works for has great leaders. And then I want to work for a company like John works for because of what they do. So there's that. And then the other part of it is that um, your impact on people in terms of, so if you work for me, Nisar, and you know that I care about you, you know that I value you, you've heard it from me directly, that I'm glad you're there, and that I want to help you grow. I want to teach you everything that I know and give you challenging assignments so that you can fulfill your purpose and your dreams of whatever it is that you want to accomplish in your career, you're, gonna, you're not only going to do great work, but you're going to impact your customers with greater excitement. And now your customer is going, this is one great company because this guy is terrific, this Nisar. And not realizing that Nisar's personality is being impacted by the how he, he he's being managed. And so not only are you impacting from a leadership standpoint, the employee, but you're impacting the customer. And if you're impacting the customer in that way, you're also directly and indirectly impacting the shareholders of the company. And so if you do great work and your customers love you and they do more business with you, that's going to expand the bottom line. And that's going to drive the company to have greater stock performance. And then people are going to go, wow, Nisar's company is fantastic. And what a great stock bet. And so who doesn't win in this equation? Everyone wins. That's the key. Everyone. All constituencies win. Employee, employer, customer, and shareholder. I was just, when you were talking about uh, the, right now, I was thinking about uh, something I recently read from Tom Peters, mm -hmm. who wrote uh, In Search of Excellence. Yeah. He just wrote a, he wrote, I was reading his book, 163 Ways to Improve Your Excellence. And he was talking about how many companies are just focused on sh shareholders and many, some cases, just customers. But they said the people who take care of the customers are the employees. And when you take good care of the employees, the customers will automatically be well taken care of 
And as a result, they'll buy more sales revenue goes up and the shareholders are happy. So start with the employees first. And when I read that, it's funny enough. It's funny. I just read that a week ago and that is totally different from what I've read out there. So uh, I just wanted to share that thought that just came as you were speaking. Well, this is not a traditional belief, and it's obviously everything that I just described. So I have believed this for a very, very long time. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, when my book first came out, there was a lot of resistance to this kind of thinking, even to the idea of leading with heart. It's like, who does that? You know, that's that everybody knows if you care about people, they're going to get soft around the middle and they're not going to perform and the leader's going to look bad and he's going to end up losing his job. It's like, you know, heart acts like kryptonite in business. But even experts like Tom Peters are coming around to recognize um, that, uh, you know, the, uh, I can't, why can't I think of his name, but the CEO of Virgin, um, Sir Richard, um, Richard Branson. Branson. He, he, he is a major advocate for this idea that you don't need to worry about shareholders and constituents. You need to worry about your people. And so, you know, in business, as, as you know, as I experience business, every senior manager meeting, every important meeting I ever had was, you know, the, the customer comes first. And if we take care of the customer, the customer is going to make sure that the shareholder is doing great. And it was sort of like, and so you people, you employees, well, the whole obligation is on you. And like, what's motivational about that? And so nothing, really. I mean, it's, it's really it's sort of it becomes obligatory as opposed to aspirational. And so when you say to people, look, we're going to invest in you. We're going to value you. We're going to we're going to make your experience of working here so great that we expect that you're going to do really great work. And that that great work is ultimately going to be the benefit of building more customers and building up our share of success. And that is much more interesting to people. It's like make it a focus on the employee and the other two constituencies will work. So, um, you know, I'm seeing this idea much more prevalent in business than I did a couple of years ago. Let's just say that. And that that means that, you know, there's this idea is having influence. That's exciting to me. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about your book, uh, Deep from the Heart? What would you like to know specifically? It's a very big question. <laughs> <laughs> so as a reader, someone picks up that book, what can they expect? They can expect a very untraditional leadership book. And I won't spoil the story, but what I will tell you is that how I learned to lead this way uh, draws on an upbringing that nobody would ever want. Uh, n n no one should ever have. Uh, but it, it, it sort of rewired me, it changed my fundamental wiring as a person. And when I started managing people, I had a motivation unconsciously to support people in very unusual ways. And so through the course of my career, I managed people very, very differently, um, much more caringly, um, but not soft. I also had very high expectations of people. And so I routinely had really, really extraordinary success in terms of managing people. So it didn't really matter what team, what job people were doing, what what their backgrounds were. I found a way to drive performance uh, no matter what. 
Um, and in fact, you know, my last position, I managed a couple thousand stockbrokers all over the country, and we had record performance the first year. I was named leader of the year of the organization, and I've never sold a stock in my life, even now. Uh, even though I have all the licenses and I have the the the, uh, the ability to do it, that's just not what my career experience was. I was given that role because of my ability to drive performance. But in driving performance was leveraged off of instinctive reactions to a very, very difficult, I'll just leave it at that, upbringing, which I explain in the preface of the book, that led me to managing people in an untraditional way and then I'm not kidding. It wasn't until I was in my early 40s that it began to dawn on me that everything that I had been doing for people in terms of being their advocate and, and really a coach and somebody who valued them and cared about them and really wanted to see them grow and succeed, all of that, that was connected to this upbringing. And so once I began to realize that, Nisar, I started to say, okay, how do I refine these? How do I, these practices, how do I get people to do even better things based on these? And so I refined them, not thinking I was ever going to write a book, but ultimately refined the practices so that I could be even better, more effective in managing people. And then it dawned on me that I had really great and untraditional thinking um, as a result of an entire career. And so I spent uh, about three years doing more research on the science, science of the heart, uh, the research around engagement and what is happening to millennials and sharing personal stories uh, of my experience of managing people that have driven uh, probably the greatest response to the book are the stories um, because I think they're universal and people can react to them and respond to them, but they're responding to them in sort of an epiphany point of view, which is, oh, wow, he's right. And so the book is now being taught in five U.S. universities. Um, and it's interesting because when it first came out, that was sort of like, you know, people just looked at the title and thought, no, that guy doesn't get it. But uh, not only is it being taught in the universities, but uh, just last week it was an Amazon best hundred seller. And so the world is coming to realize after I think I, you know, I'll just tell you, I feel like I took a lot of punches in the stomach on this for quite some time where people resisted this idea. But now once people realize there's a science to it and that there's a credibility to my experience that I've actually been in the real world in a dog eat dog, you know, dog eat dog kind of a financial services environment and succeeded, I have the credibility. And I think one other component of this is that I'm a man. And so I can say heart with a straight face and people don't look at you like what, you know. Why would you say that? And so I think there's a lot of reasons now where people are looking at the book and saying, you know, this guy has something compelling to say. And we know that traditional leadership isn't working anyway. I mean, people, half of Americans hate their jobs. How how good is that for our society? How good is that for business? And turnover is rampant in a lot of organizations. And people are looking at that and saying, how do we fix it? And so they've tried the superficial fixes. They add a ping pong table or bring in free sodas or snacks. And they think, oh, that's going to win people over. Well, no, that, that's not going to win people over. And so the practices that I share in the book, why we need to change leadership, uh, is really the big takeaway. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so we are coming towards the uh, end of the session here. 
Uh, what I, will, I wanted to say that what I will do is I usually write a summary of the interview. I will make sure to add a, a link to the book and also to your website so that uh, the listeners, if they wanted more information, uh, I, I, based on what he just said, I think based on all the information, uh, this is something that will definitely resonate with them. And if they wanted to find out more, they can uh, go to the website or Amazon. So thanks for sharing all the perspectives. Before we go, one any last word, any last thoughts on what we have discussed so far? Uh, yes. And, you know, it's interesting because I've sort of matured as a human being in being able to express this. Uh, but at the end of the day, what I really think that leadership comes down to is love. Love your people is the last thing that I say in every speech that I give. And, um, you know, and I just spoke at Yahoo, for example, and ended my speech by saying the major takeaway from everything we've just talked about is love your people. And people understand that because they want to be loved themselves. And what we know, this is not romantic love. This is not, you know, Romeo and Juliet kind of love. We're, we're talking about um, human love. And we know now today that the experience of positive emotions is really what we were wired to thrive on as human beings. And because emotions are short lived, like you can't be excited for very long, nor can you be angry at your spouse for very long. You know, if you throw a plate, you're going to throw your plate and then that'll be the end of it. You get it out of your system kind of a thing, right? Well, um, so anger and joy, they don't last very long. So if you want people to have the experience of positive emotions um, in a way that's going to help them thrive consistently, well, that means inherently that they have to have the experience often. And the only way they're going to get that often is by having managers who give it to them. And so that comes back to this caring, valuing, appreciating, growing, these kinds of things. But the interesting thing is that there's new research now from the world of positive psychology that shows that when you think about the positive emotions like joy, excitement, love, awe, that it turns out that they all boil down to love. So that joy is the equivalent of love. Excitement is the equivalent of love. Awe is the equivalent of love. So if you just take that from a scientific standpoint, what we're really saying is, is that when you give people, human beings, the experience of positive emotions in the workplace, you're giving them love. And you don't even have to express it. You just do it. That people feel it no matter what. And that's my thesis is that feelings and emotions drive what we care about, you know, our human behavior. And so there's no greater energy on the planet than love. And if you're valuing people and appreciating them, they're feeling loved, whether they know it or not. So you never have to use the word vocally. You, I mean, unless you say, hey, I love you, man. You're great. You know, that's that's cool. But you don't have to use it. You just have to do it. So my, you know, my, my whole thesis is, and, you know, and I, I used to go, well, it's business love, you know, it's, you know, making equivocations so that people wouldn't think less of me and think I was soft because people already were. I already put heart in the title of my book, which is to many people, a colossal mistake. Um, but there's a day where we're all going to recognize that leading from the heart is the only way to drive human behavior in a way that's going to 
allow people to thrive and allow organizations to thrive. And, uh, you know, loving your people just comes with that. So I'm totally comfortable saying it and I've had the experience for 25 years of proving that it works. Thanks, Mark. I think that's a great summary that ties it ties everything together. Um, I just wanted to say thanks for sharing your ideas. I learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners, the audience is going to uh, learn. Uh, I'm sure they'll listen and learn a brand new perspective. So I appreciate sharing everything. And thanks for being a guest on this episode. My pleasure. Fun to have time with you on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of the Career Metis Podcast. I have written a brief summary of the interview with links to Mark's website and also the book. Uh, if you liked what you heard, feel free to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you enjoyed the episode and learned something new, feel free to post a comment or review. Until next time, this is Nisar Ahmad, your host for the Career Metis Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.